Hoopball Podcast listeners. Are you a fantasy expert and want to write or podcast for Hoopball? Do you have aspirations of covering a team? Are you a master of sales and want to earn some cash on the phones? Well, we've got good news. Hoopball's recruiting. If you think you have what it takes, hit us up at Hoopball Fantasy on Twitter or by emailing teamhoopball at hoop-ball.com. Again, that's at Hoopball Fantasy on Twitter or emailing teamhoopball at hoop-ball.com. The following is a Hoopball presentation. Welcome to the Fantasy NBA Today podcast. Hello once again, everybody, and welcome to Fantasy NBA Today, a hoop ball presentation. I am Dan Bespris, your gracious host, and we're back into team breakdowns on this glorious Tuesday morning. You can follow me on Twitter, by the way, at Dan Bespris. You could, of course, follow Hoopball at Hoopball Fantasy. I wanted to start the show, and we had, of course, our canned promo here before the podcast even begins, but I wanted to start the show by reminding everybody that uh, our good buddies William and Lyle have reinitiated Hoopball on Instagram. That's right, Hoopball's on Instagram. I want to use the hello fellow young people meme because clearly I have no idea what I'm talking about here. But you can follow Hoopball on Instagram at Hoopball Official is the page. Hoopball Official is the Instagram page you can follow. Uh, you can find that very easily by searching. You can also get it from our Twitter feed if you're already on over there. But uh, we're trying to reach out to... Uh, I don't know. What is it? The younger audience? <laughs> I've been told by people younger than me that Facebook is for people older than me, Twitter is for people my age, and Instagram is for people younger than me. I don't know if that's accurate. I've also been told that I need to learn what Snapchat is. But I don't think any of this is happening because I'm set in my old man ways. Uh, good morning again, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning in. I appreciate you guys spending your time with us here on Fantasy NBA Today. I know it's been sort of a weird few months. We've, I think we've done a, a, a pretty good job of covering things that are at least remotely useful to the fantasy player. Uh, but I will admit, as I look towards the future, I'm concerned. And the reason I'm concerned is because there's not really going to be NBA news or fantasy news for a long time yet. Here, here's what I'm going through in my head. The season is going to be coming back in about seven and a half weeks. I think there was somebody said 52 days. I saw on Twitter they said 52 days. I could have counted that. Seven weeks is 49, three more days to Friday. 52 days. That's great and all. First of all, I, I legitimately don't know how we're going <laughs> to... We're gonna do for the next 52 days 20 weeks uh is supposed to be our off season so we're knocking that out here early what i will say is you know we, we there, there's some plans in the works for uh, our buddies over at fan tracks to be booting up an eight game roto style league when the season comes back for the eight game regular season with just the 22 teams they'll have just the players that are active and we'll definitely be discussing that so that'll be fun as we get a little bit closer to the restart of the season. My hope here is that 
th- this is my tentative plan in my head as I'm sort of laughing as I'm saying it. The next 10 to 15 shows will probably be still on the kind of completed portion of this last season. We still have a few more teams to cover. Uh, we still have some more lessons to go over. I want to get Brew back on the show. We'll probably talk a little bit about what's going on in the world at that point. And I know some of you folks out there are a little bit more of the stick-to-sports-y crowd, so you guys might end up skipping that particular episode. Then, because again, we're 52 days from NBA games being played, but we're it's not 52 shows because we don't do weekends, so it's you know five for every seven, basically. So we're more in the neighborhood of like 35 to 37-ish shows between now and, and when the season begins. I think what I'd like to do is spend about 15 or so shows looking at what people should be doing for the eight-game re-engagement, meaning we'll talk about what a draft would look like with only 22 teams in. More than likely, we will be hosting an industry league for those eight games back, so we'll be able to talk about some of the results from that as well, and hopefully that'll help you guys if you're diving back in. And then, while we're covering the actual games being played, I also want to preview some of the fantasy or the actual playoffs for folks that are going to be having a playoff league, which I think more people should be doing. They're fun. I get why you might not want to during a normal season. You've just been grinding for basically 180 days in a row, and so you're like, all right, you know, I, I don't, I don't really need to be doing fantasy right now. But right now, because of this busted two-part season and then the short upcoming off season, we'll probably talk a bit about the fantasy playoffs the fantasy version of the regular playoffs. Excuse me, I'm going to pick my words a bit more carefully. And when those end, then we're getting into the hopper real quick. Like the second the playoffs are over, the second the finals are done, we go into the draft, which, as you guys know, I don't cover extensively on this podcast because, as you guys also know, I generally don't end up with rookies on my fantasy team other than this year I had some Brandon Clarks. We've talked about it before. The only rookies I trust are big men that can hit their free throws because they get in there and they can do things with uh, a certain measure of ease that a rookie guard doesn't have to do. The guard has to figure out how to deal with NBA players ball hawking them all day. And a big man, they can just come off the bench and roll to the rim. Then we roll right into free agency, which is what? Like a week after this, the playoffs are over. That'll give us plenty to talk about. And then it's draft season. So getting to that point is, I mean, that's the easy stuff. Anyway, all that to say, thank you, thank you, thank you for continuing to listen to the podcast, even in these weird times where we are, to some degree, manufacturing things for the docket. But I hope that almost every show has given us kind of something to think about a little bit. Just one little thing to think about, and uh, we can kind of take things from there. So... Today is post-mortem day 28. We are 28 out of 30 today. We're in the Atlantic Division, and it might be difficult to remember because it was a couple weeks ago now with all the NBA news that's been trickling out over the last week and a half or so. We did the Boston Celtics and the Toronto Raptors so far, leaving us, unfortunately, three of the mm, not-as-fun teams to break down. But there's always something... And so today we're going to do the Philadelphia 76ers. I've given you guys no indication of when, when we're doing things and <laughs> which ones we're doing. So you're just going to bear with me on this weird journey. The Philadelphia 76ers are the team du jour. 
And they are arguably the one of, if not the easiest team to handicap in the NBA. The 76ers had, by all accounts, an interesting and useful fantasy season. No question about that. But they had issues. And we'll explore those as we go through what they've been working on today. Number one, from a reality standpoint, this is a team that was historically bad on the road versus historically good at home. It is unprecedented for a team to have this type of discrepancy between what they're able to do at home versus on the road. The 76ers were 29-2 and at home. 29-2. and That's a win percentage of 93.5. No other team in the NBA can claim 29-2 and at home. The Bucs were 28-3, and which is damn good. And that team had a win percentage of 82 overall. The Bucs were 25-9 and on the road. The other teams that had really impressive home records, the Lakers at 23-8, and the Clippers at 25-7, and the Nuggets at 25-8 and in the Western Conference. Eastern Conference, the Heat, 27-5. and Celtics and Raptors were each 23-9. and Just going over the teams that had single-digit losses on their home court. Only one of those teams, besides the 76ers, had a losing record on the road. That was the Heat at 14-19. and They had, honestly, that would have been the team we were all talking about as having giant issues away from home. By the way, super weird that Miami had that those breakdowns. It's a relatively young team, but led by Jimmy Butler, who we know is just going 115% at all times kind of guy. And it's the same type of thing with Philadelphia. If I had told you that we found a team that went 27-5 and at home and 14-19 and on the road, or if I told you we had a team that was 29-2 and at home or 10-24 and on the road, you'd probably say to me, and I probably would have said the same thing, is it a really, really young team? And if you go from just an age standpoint, yeah, the 76ers are relatively young. Embiid hasn't been in the league that long. Simmons hasn't been in the league that long. The two guys leading the charge are relatively young guys. But this team also has Tobias Harris, who's been in the NBA for a number of years now. Al Horford, who is very much a veteran. Josh Richardson, who's been with Miami for a few years. None of these guys are freshly out of school. None of this makes sense, is what I'm saying. I cannot, and I know they're not a good three-point shooting team. Tobias Harris at 1.8 actually led the club. No, excuse me, Furkan Korkmaz had two three-pointers a game. They're not a good floor-spacing team. But just from looking at their makeup, this shouldn't be. I think what you what we had here is that they had a few games where they didn't play as well on the road. They played really well at home, and it became a little bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy. The 76ers were fine as a ball club, but they had issues. They didn't have the shooting that they had last year with guys like Ersan Ilyasova and Marco Bellinelli. 
that they could use to space the floor with their current lineup. And Landry Shamit, lest we forget. So, yeah, shooting's an issue. Floor spacing is an issue. But I think to some degree, road effort was probably the biggest issue. Everybody's talking about how this Philadelphia team was just not as good as people expected. They were built in this particular manner, almost exclusively to beat the Milwaukee Bucks. Almost exclusively. So, the fact that they ended up as the sixth seed was <laughs> probably not what they were shooting for. They'll have to deal with the Boston Celtics in the first round if things do end the way they are, but of course they're tied with the 76ers, so, or the, uh, the Pacers, excuse me, so that might move a little bit. They'd have to go through Boston and Toronto before even seeing Milwaukee. They're in the other side of the bracket right now at 39 and 26. The thing about Philadelphia is when people talk about how they didn't live up to expectations and how they weren't very good, I I, I would point to the fact that they did still go 29-2 and two at home. They went 11-4 and four in their own division, which, by the way, is better than Toronto within the division. It's not a particularly tough division, but it's not super easy either. They have Boston and Toronto. Boston, by the way, went 7-6 and six in their own division. The 76ers actually had the best in-division record of anyone in the Eastern Conference besides the Bucks, at seven games over 500. Milwaukee was 13-1 in the Central Division, but come on, 70, or the Pacers were the only team they had to play in that division that had any shot. The Cavs, worst team in the East. Pistons, third worst team in the East. Bulls, fifth worst team in the East. So Philadelphia went 11-4 against effectively one of the toughest divisions in basketball. You know, the more I think about it, it's inarguably the toughest division in the Eastern Conference. You have Brooklyn, Toronto, Boston, and Philly. Four of the five teams are playoff teams. I don't think it's the toughest division in the NBA because you look at the Western Conference and those teams are just more daunting. You know, the Lakers and the Clippers being in the Pacific Division, two top teams in the West, you could make the argument that that might be the toughest one. Whatever. It doesn't matter. There's no clear-cut favorite. But they are the only division with four teams in the playoffs. The other two teams in the West, or the other two divisions in the Western Conference each have three. Utah, OKC, and Denver out of the Northwest. Houston, Dallas, Memphis out of the Southwest. Two, three, and three. In the Western Conference, in the Eastern Conference, it's 4-2-2. and two. We can do the math there. Miami and Orlando. Southeast. So within a division that has four Eastern Conference playoff teams, the 76ers went 11-4. and four. When in their conference, they went 26-16. and 16. That's pretty weird, isn't it? that they went 15-12, and 12, barely over 500 against the other teams in the Eastern Conference, generally lesser ball clubs. I get it. Milwaukee's tough. Miami's a good opponent. But they were seven games over 500 against four playoff teams. The two seed, the three seed, and the seven seed. And then, you know, New York. But they went 2-11 and in their division, so everybody in that group was beaten up on them. 
This is my very roundabout way, and I know we haven't talked fantasy about Philadelphia yet. We will here in just a second. This is my very roundabout way of saying that Philly is still one of the scarier teams come playoff time. I know everybody's just waiting for them to fall apart, and probably they won't win it. Who? I mean, who? really, who the hell knows with this strange injury shortened and then startup season and so forth. But don't be surprised if Philadelphia comes in and blows Boston out of the playoffs. Don't be surprised. Boston's been the better team throughout the regular season. There's no question about that. So has Toronto. But Philly's actually been pretty good against these clubs, against their in-division opponents. And they've been relatively successful against Milwaukee. Remember, they whipped them on Christmas Day. This is a team built for those types of games. There's a focus issue with this club. I honestly thought they'd be better this regular season. I missed on that front. I thought that they were going to come out with a little bit of something to prove, that they want to show folks that they're better than the way things ended in the playoffs last year, but it may have been more like what we had expected from a team like Denver, which we also sort of called wrong. They played better than expected. Although they were pretty close to their number. Philly underperformed in all likelihood here based on this home road split because they just weren't that focused. That's a sign that a team is not grinding on the road the way that you need to to post a good road record. And then at home, they just sort of outclass teams. Look out for Philadelphia in the playoffs. They're a little bit of a strange dark horse in the Eastern Conference. Maybe to make the conference finals. Like if things stay the way they are and they go through Boston and then Toronto, those are winnable series for the 76ers. Keep them on this side of the bracket. Make a futures wager for Philly to make the Eastern Conference finals and then you can hedge it when you get there because Milwaukee's probably going to beat them. But who knows? I like them as a uh, betting dark horse. From a fantasy standpoint... Well, things went largely as expected with some small caveats. We'll start at the top and work our way down the way we've been doing with teams in the past. Joel Embiid finished at number 15 on a per-game basis in nine-category leagues, but he only played in 44 games again, which brings up one of the big issues and how, boy, I almost talked myself into Joel Embiid in one league. I have been beating myself up because the whole way through I'm thinking, I don't really want this guy. I don't really trust him to play more than 64 games this year. He's never played more than 64 games in a season. He's never missed fewer than 18 games in a season, and he had missed about 20 again this year. 21, I think, is the final number there. He'll probably play in the eight games when we come back, so blah, 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 but whatever. We're talking about during the real grind, he missed 21 games. And everything was down. His usage being the biggest single factor in all of that. Everything was down except his three-point percentage. His free throw shooting was basically the same. Volume was down. Rebounding down. Assists down. Blocks way down. Steals actually went up a little bit. Can't figure that one out. Usage way down. And I know you could point to the fact that he wasn't playing as many minutes. Last year he played 34, eh, 33 and a half minutes per game. This year he was at 30. But even if you took 10% off of last year, that doesn't account for the drop-off. 10% off of almost 19 shots a game would still be about 17 shots a game. And he was at 16 
The free throws should have come down by one. They came down by 1.4. Rebounding should have come down by 1.4, and it came down by 1.8. Assists were down by about 20%. Blocks were down a ton. Blocks were down 30%. I don't know what the hell the problem is here. I mean, I know that we're dealing with someone who was kind of on and off the injury report, but that was how things were in previous seasons, and he managed to keep the per-minute production higher. The only thing I can think is you point to the fact that they wanted him going at a little bit of a lesser clip. He got off to a very slow start this year before playing better in kind of the middle months of the year and then injury doing its thing again. But overall, his minutes were down. His usage was down. They had a backup center that was capable in Al Horford. They had Tobias Harris for the full season. But, I mean, I don't think we can blame it on that because they had Jimmy Butler there last year also. And Joel Embiid still got his almost 19 shots a game. I know Butler wasn't there the whole year, but you catch my meaning. I think this is a guy in Embiid who was attempting to maintain some measure of health during the regular season. And so he dialed it back to 90%, and he still couldn't stay healthy. That, to me, is a bad sign going forward. I don't think he takes the hit in drafts that perhaps he should, finishing at number 15 on a per-game basis, and again, far lower than that by totals. By totals, Joel Embiid didn't even make the top 100. Nope, excuse me, I got that wrong. He was uh, top 60. Excuse me, looking at the wrong column. He was inside the top 60 by totals. 60! This is a guy people were drafting at the end of the first round. If you had Joel Embiid as your first round pick, you probably lost your league. Maybe you didn't lose, that's a harsh word, but you probably didn't win it. Unless you had all of our favorite favorite draft picks to go with him. Like if you had Whiteside, Tatum, Paul Lowry, Van Vliet, and Ingram along with a miss on Joel Embiid, yeah, that would probably float you okay. But that's a critical knock. You need your top guy or guys, as you know we do on this podcast. We try to make sure that we're taking dudes at the top that are actually going to hit their ADP. You need those guys on the floor. They have to get close, at least, to their ADP. Joel Embiid was getting drafted around 10 this year. Sometimes earlier than that. And he finished, again, by totals, just inside the top 60. Behind Al Horford by totals. I know. I know totals don't tell the whole story. In fact, by totals on the 76ers, Tobias Harris was the runaway winner. We'll talk about him in a minute. So Joel Embiid played 30 minutes a game. He averaged 23.5 points, 12 rebounds, 1.3 blocks, 0.9 steals, 3 assists, 47 from the field, 81.5 at the free throw line. This is a guy that looks like a second-round pick going forward. And I know that oftentimes, my first move with a guy having a down year like Joel Embiid is to try to figure out, basically, I start at this guy should be a value next year, and I work myself away from that. And with a lot of guys, I don't work myself away from that. Guys that have a slightly down year are dudes that I like to target over the next, usually just the next season. Someone like a Paul George, for instance, had a down year. He was number 30 on a per-game basis, but we can we can pin almost all of that on injury and a new atmosphere. Joel Embiid is always injured, so we can't pin it on that. 
That's par for the course. He wasn't in a new atmosphere. He actually had fewer guys around him to steal his usage rate. And yet, everything went down. I'm inclined to think that if he gets drafted inside the top 15, I'm probably not taking him. If he falls to around 15, I probably would consider it. Meanwhile, Ben Simmons finished at number 34 on a per-game basis in nine category leagues. That's a pretty big win for Ben Simmons because he was someone that we avoided like the plague. But 17, almost 17 points, eight rebounds, eight assists, over two steals, half a block, 58.5% from the field, and 63% at the free throw line, which I know doesn't sound like much, but that's actually a really big reason why he was able to hang in there near his ADP. His percentages both went up from last year to this year, and his steals were crazy. 2.1 is out of control high. That is the best in the NBA this season. He led the league. And yet, <laughs> I mean, this is a guy that did a lot of really good stuff. 58.5% shooting on 11.5 shots per game, almost 17 points, 17, 8, and 8 with two steals. That's crazy good. Still couldn't crack the top 30. Because... Free throw percent anchor, zero three-pointers, and turnover anchor at 3.6 per ball game. I know, we're splitting hairs a little bit here, but he's always going to be a guy that gets drafted early and struggles to live up to that number. Ben Simmons' ADP was 26. He had a brilliant season. Unless Joel Embiid gets traded, I don't know how he improves upon this year, other than maybe seeing his free throw percentage continue to tick a little bit higher. Doesn't look like three-pointers are coming anytime soon. He had been relatively durable prior to this year, missing 11 ball games. He played in 81 his, his first year, 79 the following season. So there's, there's an advantage to Ben Simmons in that generally he's pretty durable. So you take him, and if he posts this top 40 type deal and plays in almost every ball game, well, then he's going to get close to his ADP. As it turns out this year, because he missed 11 ball games, his totals and his per-game numbers are almost exactly in sync, and they both were behind his ADP. He could get close, though. I got to give him credit. He beat my expectations. Still didn't get to his ADP, but he did beat my expectations. Looking ahead to next year, Simmons probably gets drafted pretty high again. Probably in the 20s again. And I'm probably not taking him, even though those numbers are juicy. In Roto, he kills you in a few categories, and that's hard to come back from. The elite-level steals are nice, but you can piecemeal it together with some other guys that are just not hurting you. As sort of a weird little point of comparison, and things really took a turn for Al Horford as the season went along, so we'll, we'll break him down in pieces here a little bit. As a point of comparison, though, for the entire season, by totals, Al Horford was only 11 slots behind Ben Simmons. Even though his per-game numbers were way, way, way behind him. So we'll go to the next guy on the per-game list, and that's Tobias Harris, who finished right at number 50. Which is basically right at his ADP. His ADP was 51. He was a guy that I loved taking in that 51 range. Because, for a few reasons, actually. Number one... I actually thought on a per-game basis he might beat that number. As it turns out, on a per-game basis, he was right on the number. 
because, well, largely because his free throw percent came down. If he shot his career mark in free throw percent, he would have been in the mid-40s and he would have beaten his ADP. But whatever, that doesn't matter. Everything else was almost exactly the same for Tobias as what we expected coming into the year. The beauty for Tobias Harris is that he's pretty dang durable. You know what's really remarkable is that he actually played in all 82 games last year despite being traded midseason. He played in 80 games the previous year despite being traded midseason, and he played in all 82 games for Detroit the year before that, last time he wasn't traded in the middle of a season. This is a guy that's been moved from Orlando to Detroit, from Detroit to the Clippers, from the Clippers to the Sixers, He's been traded three times, four times, if you go all the way back to his second year in the league when he went uh, from Milwaukee to Orlando. But if you go more recently when he's been a starter, he's been traded midseason three additional times. And in those years, he's still managed to play 76, 80, and 82 games. His durability is through the roof. He has the 10th category at his disposal. And so for Tobias, even though his per game value was right on his ADP, by totals, he was number 24. It's wonderful to get a top 50 guy playing every single game. That's a big, big deal in every format. You know how sometimes we talk about the guys that are right around 100 to 120? And if they play in every single ball game, their value on the season by totals tends to go up into that 75 to 80 range. Like, look at the guys uh, around 80 or 85. Tomas Sadoransky. By totals, he was number 81, despite averaging 9, 4, and 5. By averages, he was well outside the top 100. And that's a guy that, when you talk about him, you're like, you know what, I don't really feel like I needed him on my team all season long. Like, I didn't need a guy posting top 125 value all 65 games unless I'm in a weekly format. If you're in a weekly roto format, that's probably the spot where you use a guy like that. Most daily leagues, you're expecting more out of your guy on a night-to-night basis than top 130. I don't care if he's playing all 65 games. I can find a player. I mean, if you turn Sadoransky, this is the game we like to play on this show, and many of you have heard me go through it, so I'll try not to make it too long. But if you turn that roster spot, this hypothetical roster spot currently occupied by Tomas Sadoransky, He's playing all 65 games at top 128 value. What if you were able to piecemeal 11 different guys that each played six games, basically, and those six games were at a top 100 clip? So the first two weeks, you had a guy at the 100 mark, and then you dropped him for someone else that was, you know, injury replacement, stuff like that. If you had the guy around rank 100 in that slot, playing all 65 games, as opposed to the guy at number 128. And we just mentioned, Sadoransky ended up at number 81. If that roster spot was top 100 guys, six different of them, 11 different of them, whatever, that guy's now number 68 by totals on the year. And what if you had, I mean, we can keep playing this game. We can play this game all day. What if you had, and you know who fits that mold, by the way, is, is P.J. Tucker this year. Uh, what if you had Duncan Robinson, who was number 85 on a per-game basis and played in all 65 games? 
Where did he finish this year? 59. That's the magic of totals. But it also, to me, illustrates why you want your big guns to be the ones playing a lot of games. Because Sadoransky, at 128, playing in every ball game doesn't help that much. Most of us can wheel and deal our last one or two roster spots to get guys performing at better than a 128 clip. Most of us can get Duncan Robinson with 6 to 10 different bodies in that last roster spot. That guy is number 59 by totals. Sadoransky's number 81. Tobias Harris, who's a top 50 player on a per-game basis, clearly someone you want in your lineup, played all 65 games and finished at number 24 by totals. That is why durability is such a big deal for some of the key, the more important names on your team and less important for the plotters because you could just drop those guys for someone else performing better than they are anyway. Tobias Harris was very consistent, and I would draft him at 50 again. Done. Done. That's it. Al Horford was ranked number 64 on the Sixers, although his season was very much a tale of one long, useful stretch, and then one very short, pretty atrocious stretch when he decided, or when they decided to move him off the bench. Al Horford's value next year is going to be tied up in whether or not he is starting or coming off the bench. I love Al Horford. I love his versatile fantasy game. I love the fact that when Joel Embiid is out, he was racking up fat statistics. And the fact that Joel Embiid is always out certainly makes life easier for Al Horford. But there was about a one to two week stretch in there where Embiid was back, and everybody was back, and they decided to bring Horford off the bench, and he was playing more like 25 minutes a game and really wasn't doing much of anything. I don't really know what the 76ers are planning on doing when they come back from this layoff, let alone what they plan on doing next year. But they got cash tied up in everybody, and I think we can use this eight game and maybe even the playoffs as a decent sample to figure out what the plan is going forward. If the plan is for Horford to come off the bench, I just don't think you draft him next year. You'd probably have to take him in the sixth round, maybe the seventh, sixth or seventh round next year. And if Embiid happens to, in an amazing twist, play in something like 67 or 70 ball games, and you only get 12 Horford starting center games next year, you're doomed. Because when they were bringing him off the bench, he was well outside the top 100. And that, for an entire season, doth not a fantasy make. Which is a shame, because, again, I love Al Horford's fantasy game. He does all this stuff. He gets steals, he gets blocks, scores a little bit, rebounds a bit, good percentages. There's nothing not, not to like there. Field goal percent was way down this year. His game changed. He played a lot of power forward. But 12 points, 7 boards, 4 assists, a steal, a block, one and a half three three-pointers. He does all the things. So I ended up at number 63 on a per-game basis. Excuse me, 64. But he's a guy we need to watch very closely because his 31 minutes a game gets him to that 64 mark. If he's coming off the bench and still taking kind of a passive role, 
It could be a mess. He could be down near the the top 100 area. Or maybe we find out coming out of this break that everybody was dinged up and they do want to move him back into the starting lineup. Al Horford, put a little a little marker on your sheet next to we need to keep close track of what he's going to be doing here when the league comes back. I don't really want to talk about Alec Burks. He did all of his damage in Golden State. He was completely useless with the 76ers. Same deal for Glenn Robinson III. I don't really want to talk about Shake Milton because he did his damage when everybody was hurt. I do, however, want to talk briefly about Josh Richardson and Matisse Thybul. Richardson had a season also marred by injury. But here's the thing. And this is what we're always looking for. We're looking for the guys that was their season ruined by injury and their prime for a bounce back. Or was their season ruined by injury and it wasn't going to be good anyway. And that's the story with Josh Richardson. Because and, and this comes back to lesson learned number one. All the way back to our very first Lesson Learned podcast. What was the very first one? Usage is value. We knew damn well going to Philly, he was not going to get the usage he had in Miami. There was no way. And sure enough, his minutes were down five, roughly. No, excuse me, four from 35 to 31. Shots per game down from 14 to 12. Free throws down from 3.2 to 2.7. Assists down from four to three. But in our minds, I mean, he's this is a prime example of getting cute. In our minds, we said, well, yeah, we understand that to be true. He was the lead offensive option on Miami last year. He's going to a place where he was going to be, at best, the third option on offense, and generally more like the fourth. It's Kevin Love syndrome. You go from being either a good player on a bad team or, in this case, an okay player on a bad team to being a decent or good player on a good team, you're going to take a hit. And we keep talking ourselves into it. We keep saying, well, efficiency. What about efficiency? He's going to go to a place where Ben Simmons is going to get him open looks and Embiid is going to drag people into the paint. And Tobias Harris is going to be scoring from wherever spots on the floor. So he'll have some gravity. Surely, Josh Richardson's shot selection will get simpler. And it kind of did, actually. His field goal percent was 41 with Miami last year in his ultra-high-volume role, and it dropped to, excuse me, it rose to 43 this year with Philadelphia. Free throw percent was way down. I can't fully explain that one. Presumably that'll bounce back maybe when he's less hurt. But a bump of 2% in field goal isn't covering up the drop in everything else, the drop in three-pointers from 2.2 to 1.5, the drop in scoring from almost 17 to 14. Down one assist, down three points, down .7 three-pointers, down free throw volume, which was a positive for him last year and was basically net neutral this season. Going up 2% in field goal, I mean, that's the kind of thing you want from someone like Devontae Graham. You'll take that because he's such a high-volume guy. That a little bump in field goal percent goes a long way. With someone taking 12 shots a game, going from awful to kind of bad in field goal percent really wasn't enough 
to make up for the losses and everything else. And he didn't hit his mark even last year. The hope with Josh Richardson, you have to go back two or three years for this, the hope with Jay Rich was always that he was going to be a defensive powerhouse. Remember that season? He played 81 games for Miami, averaged one and a half steals and .9 blocks. 2.4 combined defensive stats. Well, last year that went down to 1.6, and this year it stayed at 1.6. That's who he's become. From a 1.9 or greater defensive stats guy to 1.6 or less. And if so, if those things aren't going up, if the only thing improving in his move to Philadelphia is the field goal percent by a little bit and everything else is staying the same or going down, it's not enough. And so, no, he's not a guy I'm targeting next year because he finished at 156. He's probably more like a top 100 guy if he doesn't play the season hurt. But I'm, I feel like he's probably going to get drafted inside the top 100 despite the intensely down season. I don't think he's going to fall far enough. I could be wrong on that part. I don't know exactly where he's going to go in drafts next year. If he does fall outside the top 100, okay, great. He goes back to being a value. But just based on the fact that for years he's been a guy, a fantasy darling, it feels like it's going to take more than one wretched year for, for everybody to turn on him. If I'm wrong, that's fine. We'll find out when ADP numbers come out, probably sometime in October or November. And if it's like, oh, Josh Richardson, he's barely getting drafted at all. Okay, fine. Yeah, we'll, we'll definitely scoop him at that point. Because if he's going like an Evan Fournier did the, this year, 125, 135, there's almost no way he doesn't hit that mark in a healthy season. And if he doesn't, who cares? You ended up spending your 10th, 11th round pick on him. But if you got to take him at 80, 85, 90, can't do it. And he was going earlier than that this year. He was going at 70-something. And the other player I want to talk about is Matisse Thibault, who got a lot of coverage in fantasy circles, but not from us. Captain Buzzkill over here that I've long been. I tried to talk you guys away from picking him up. I worked on some of you guys, and many of you picked him up anyway and then came back and said, yeah, I dropped him right after the fact. You guys know I love my buzzkills, my Chris Boucher's, my Rondé Hollis Jefferson's, my Matisse Thibault's. He needs someone out of his way. Simple as that. He didn't do anything on offense. Yes, he had 2.1 defensive stats in only 19 and a half minutes a game. It's very Nerland's Noel-like of him, but... He only had five points and one and a half rebounds. There has to be something else there. Bad percentages, both of them. He's not there yet. And I don't see how, unless something clears out a massive runway for him, I don't see how he gets the usage to do enough. Because even if he was playing 30 minutes a game right now, it still wouldn't be enough to have fantasy value. You know I don't care about points, but you have to do something. 30 minutes a game right now would put him somewhere around 8 points, 2 rebounds, and 1.5 assists. Yeah, there might be a lot of defensive stats, which would be sweet. And it might just get him near the top 100 in 30 minutes a game. But I don't know where 30 minutes a game is coming from. Do you want to take him as your very last pick in the draft next year? Maybe. I think I'd still lean another direction. I, just, I think I'd still lean to someone who has a greater shot of hanging in there all year. Now, if somebody moves, I don't know how they're going to do it, but if somebody moves out of the way, then you can rethink things a little bit. 
But as it stands right now, there just isn't enough opportunity for a 7th, 8th, ninth guy on a team, even when he has the defensive prowess of a Matisse Dybul. Something else has to give. We'll probably get all sorts of stories leading up to next season about, well, normally we don't, normally we have a whole offseason of that. For this time, there's not going to be any time for stories about guys. Season's going to end, and then training camp's going to be four or five weeks later. You'd be like, what did Matisse Dybul work, off, work on in his offseason? Well, he worked on not getting sick for four months. Then they played, then they didn't play, and now he's playing again. Players aren't going to have the opportunity this offseason to improve their game the way that maybe they have in seasons past, unless they're doing it right now, or did it between March and May at home, a home court, I guess. Some of these guys have that, not all of them. I don't know if you're going to see the steps forward next year, just because of the way things are constructed. And that's your Philadelphia 76ers. Overall, I think the lesson here continues to be if you're going to spend an early round pick on someone who's injury prone, uh, just don't do it. Don't do it. Forget. Don't if. That's not an if. That's a don't. Don't blow an early round pick on someone who really, truly does miss games for being hurt. I know the reply there is, Dan, you, you talked us into Kawhi Leonard this year. Well, yeah, because... Even with Toronto, he really wasn't hurt. And he was so good that even in 65 games, he was beating his ADP. Joel Embiid wasn't. He was close. And I almost talked myself into Joel Embiid. Remember, we got close to talking ourselves into it. But then ultimately veered away because his stuff has been predictable in its lack of predictability. Kawhi Leonard's stuff has been predictable in its predictability. He's going to miss back-to-backs. He's probably going to play in almost every other ballgame. He might miss a handful here or there. Joel Embiid, it's like, well, he's probably going to miss back-to-backs, and then all of a sudden he's going to have something that knocks him out for another three or four weeks. That's the way it's been so far. Now, of course, next year Kawhi is going to go way higher than Embiid, so we'll have a very different discussion. And then the other thing with Philly is usage is value. Even for someone like Al Horford, usage is value. His usage is dropping, value will go down. Josh Richardson's usage dropped, his value went down. Embiid's usage dropped, his value went down. Ben Simmons is about the only guy floating around out there whose usage didn't take a substantial hit. And sure enough, his value held steady. Even his shots went down year over year, 12.2 to 11.4. Assists went up, so maybe you could call it a little bit of a wash, but everybody's usage went down a little bit in Philly this year. Except <laughs> maybe Tobias Harris. Uh, our guy Tobias hanging in there. Against all odds, Tobias Harris. But that's not even really true, is it? All right, have a great Tuesday, everybody. Back at you again tomorrow. Um, we'll see. We might do another team. We might do something else. We're in countdown mode Do we get to talk about eight-game draft again. Stick with us. It'll be fun. I'm Dan Vespers, at Dan Vespers on Twitter. Hit me up, as the promo told you, if you need something, whatever you might need. Uh, rate and review the podcast if you haven't before. I think most of you probably have, so I'll leave it at that. We'll talk to you tomorrow.
This has been a Hoop Ball presentation.